last week of more because next week we're going to start our Christmas series. Um, and so let me jump into it right away because I got a lot to say about this topic. I am so fascinated by this topic. I'm going to start the same way I've started the last couple of weeks. We have been invited to a gigantic cosmic party. Our host has filled the room with guests and the finest affair. The venue, the place of this party is beautiful, the food is phenomenal, and the DJ is some guy named Diplo. If you don't know who that is, my kids will explain it to you like they did me. It's the kind of party where everything flows in abundance. There's enough for everyone, and all you have to do at parties like this, and this is what your host hopes you'll do, it's what your host planned for you to do, is to just be in the moment and forget about all of the other things. Trust in the goodness and the preparation of the host and enjoy the party. And this, if you've been with us over these few weeks, this is the picture of the world as God created, a world of, of abundance overflowing with his goodness. But for so many of us, because of, of a faulty mindset or worldview, we see the world not as a place of abundance, but instead a place of scarcity. Anybody remember the movie, um, Coming, I might date myself here, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? See, just chuckling when you hear it, right? It tells the story, if you're unfamiliar with it, of an upper-class commodities broker and a homeless street hustler who, whose lives cross when they become part of an elaborate bet by some successful stockbrokers, Mortimer and Randolph Duke. The bet has to do with the debate of nature versus nurture, and the guinea pig in the experiment is the homeless Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy. And so the Dukes want to show that they can train up anybody to be a successful um, stockbroker. And so they go and bail out of jail, uh, Eddie Murphy, in his role as Billy Ray, and they take him into his new life uh, as penthouse-owning stock trader. And it just reminds me so much of the abundance we've been given and how we act with it. Check this out. Well, William, what do you think? I like it, Randy. It's very nice. I like the way you got the marriage and stuff hooked up over there. It's very pretty. I like that. I like that marriage. I don't think he understands, Randolph. Oh, but Marty, I do understand. Uh, I William. Do. Yes. This is your home. Uh-huh. Right. It, it belongs to you. Yeah, all this is mine. I like my home. It's very nice. It has very nice taste in houses. I like Everything it. you see in this room is yours now. Uh-huh. This is my stuff. Your own personal property? Yeah, my own personal. You understand? This is mine. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know what I like most about my place, Randy? The curtains, man. Look at the curtains. It's beautiful the way I got this place set up, man. This is something else. I like it. We're invited to the party, but we don't enjoy it. We steal the silverware. Conversely, and these are much harder to find, clips that kind of show what uh, an abundance mindset is versus a scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset, right, it causes us to hoard and grasp and fear, not just over money, but over health and love and respect and admiration. Conversely, this is, I think, uh, quickly, as best as I come up with, what, what, what an abundance mindset looks like in a situation where most of us would react with scarcity. Check this out. Jerry. Yes? I've been doing a lot of thinking. Uh-huh. Well, I don't think we should see each other anymore. Oh, that's okay. What? No, it's fine. No problem. I'll meet somebody else. Oh, really? Sure. See, things always even out for me. Huh? It's fine. Anyway, it's been really nice dating you for a while. And, uh, good luck. Scarcity or abundance? The latter is the mindset of Jesus and the worldview that he would have those of us that claim to follow him, that, that he would, we would want us to have. Because the former, the scarcity mindset, is the root of all kinds of personal and social ills, and I would tell you it underlies all kinds of evil. As we've seen, you have to look no further than what Jesus taught about scarcity thinking and how he lived out over and over again the mindset of abundance. Here's how Luke recorded it. Jesus said, Watch out, be on your guard. This is a serious warning, right? When somebody says, watch out, exclamation point, be on your guard. Be on your guard, watch out against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. 
Jesus is saying, be on your guard against all, not just financial greed, all kinds of greed, because if you don't understand what it could do to you, it will, it will make you miss out on the meaning of life. And then he tells a story. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I don't have a place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Which I'm telling you, if I gave you this story, if I sat down with you and your financial planner, you would go, this is a teaching of Jesus on how to be responsible with what we've been given. We would likely, if we didn't know the ending of this story, we would think that Jesus is going to praise him for his responsible living. But if you're honest and you, 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 you didn't know the ending, what comes next would provide a harsh and somewhat unexpected twist. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is going to be demanded from you. Then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it's going to be with whoever stores up things for themselves but isn't rich towards God. And here's Jesus' definition of greed. This is what he's saying be careful about. The thing we need to watch out for is tied to this way of thinking that we have, which is that whatever we have been given, whatever makes its way into our hands, has been given to us for our consumption. Maybe right now, or maybe we put it away for later. But as, as we said last week, that underlies something that, that drives us to make all kinds of bad decisions, a, a consumption assumption. Everything that I have is for my consumption. And, and why? What underlies a consumption mentality? It's not that you're bad. Because in this story, the rich man wasn't a bad or an evil man. As I said, you could argue he was a responsible man. In many ways, his story is our story. I am doing much, much of what he's doing. What drove him to hoard was not because he was a bad guy. What drove him to hoard was worry and fear about his future, driven by a worldview that says there's not enough to get around. There's not enough to go around. So you better get yours. I better get mine and provide for mine before you get yours, because if you get yours, then I might not get mine. There's no host to this party, and if there was, he certainly can't be trusted. And so welcome to the world of scarcity thinking, which is the one you and I have, have grown up in. We've breathed in the air of its toxicity all the days of our life. And so Jesus continues. He goes, uh, therefore, I'm telling you, because life does not consist in this. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or your body, what you're going to wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. I remember we had up here my, two weeks ago my bird and, and my flowers. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have any storerooms or barns, but God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And he says, consider the flowers. They don't labor or spin. But I'm telling you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Last week, we looked at what living with a scarcity mindset does to us, coming from this verse and from Paul's teaching. Here's what we learned, that the first thing a scarcity mindset does is it has you miss out on life. Why would you take any chances, right? Because it's all about building up something, right, in case other things happen. I'm just going to put my head down and go to work. The second thing it does for us is it messes with our sense of self-worth. Jesus is going, look, God provides for the birds and for the flowers, and, and look how much more valuable you are. Don't, don't you understand your value? Third thing is it does, it causes us to worry, then it causes us to fear, Paul said, tell those that are rich amongst us, and that's most of us based on where we are and where we live. He said, tell them not to be arrogant because that's naturally what comes to those of us that store things up for ourselves. Arrogance, which also messes with our value. We start to think our value is tied to our titles, our positions, and our bank accounts. And finally, Paul says what, what it does is it migrates hope away from God to your things. They become your God. 
Now, this mindset, because it was, was so, so um, dangerous, it was something that Jesus didn't just warn about. He constantly tried to point his disciples through his life to a mindset of abundance, that God could be trusted, that there was more than enough for everyone and more than enough to go around. This is why Jesus would say things that sounded so strange, like, do not fear, or love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, don't just love your, your neighbor, love your enemy, because there's enough, it's okay, you don't have to punish him. Or go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. This is why Jesus, when a woman comes to him with an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume that she pours on his head, Many of you know the story. The disciples saw this. They were indignant. They did probably what you and I would do. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. But Jesus doesn't agree with the mindset. He goes, why are you bothering this woman? She's done something beautiful. Because apparently everything we have isn't meant to be kept in a shelf in an alabaster jar. Let me put it this way. It's, it's very simple, and then I'm going to explain it. It's not going to be very shocking, but here, here's as simply as I can put it. Jesus sees things differently than you and I do. Let me just repeat it, because that's the premise of what I'm going to tell you today. Jesus sees things differently. He has eyes that the Scripture describe as eyes that see. In the Old Testament, right in the middle of your Bible, there's a book called um, Proverbs. If you have a Bible with you, could open it up. You almost always turn to Psalms or Proverbs. It's an ancient book of wisdom writings. Here's what the writer said regarding our eyes and the, the uh, ability to see the abundance that God has provided versus the scarcity that we tend to believe in. I'm going I'm to read from the old King James Version because I love that, this version of this, uh, this teaching. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed. Why? For he giveth of his bread to the poor. You get that? You that see things right, that have an eye that, that can sense the bounty and the goodness of God, the abundance of life uh, that is surround him, what does it do? It results in giving. I have enough. My eyes can see that there will always be more than enough. And so that frees me up to be very generous, bread in this case, but it could be praise or love or honor or recognition. But now check out the very next proverb. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Okay, so before we saw a bountiful eye, now they're talking about an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. That sounds kind of strange, but anyway. Why? Why shouldn't you eat, eat of his meats? Why? Because as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to thee, but his heart isn't with thee. Someone with an evil eye... They may offer you what they have, but it's not out of a, a changed or a transformed nature. His heart is unchanged. He's given to you under compulsion or with an agenda or begrudgingly. He doesn't see things correctly. He has an evil eye which tells him there's not enough I need for me. This is why Paul told the Corinthians regarding giving, each one of you must give as you've decided in your heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All of this, all of it flows from your ability to see the world correctly with a bountiful eye, one that picks up on what God is up to and provided. Is the world a place where I have to take care of myself? There's no one watching out for me. There's no one taking care of anybody I love but me, and so I have to live life head down, keep working, keep storing up, keep holding on. It's like, it's like a life lived with your fists clenched shut. Or is the world a place where the host can be trusted and you can relax? You can leave a little food on the buffet. You could open your hand and let go of some of what you've been given. There is enough money and love and respect and honor to go around. In fact, let me give you some. So, what do you say? How's your eye? I have to tell you, this concept is so pronounced in the Scriptures, and I really had no idea how until I, I started studying it over the past few weeks. It is woven time and time again into biblical accounts. 
It's actually too much to finish today. I'm going to pick up after the holidays with a series that's going to kind of spring out of this about Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Many of you are aware of that story. By the way, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, that was only, they were only counting men, and so there was probably 15 to 20,000 there, including women and children. That story is recorded in all four of the Gospels because it's that important. Most of you know it. The crowds are, are following Jesus. It's getting late, and his disciples, armed with a scarcity mindset, tell Jesus, Jesus, you got to send everyone home now because we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. I mean, that's probably enough for us, 12, but there's not enough for them. But Jesus, who sees things very differently than we do, says, feed them. And there was more than enough. Now, here's what you might not know. That teaching, when it happened, when they experienced it, the disciples' eyes should have opened up to something. Because they, as good Jewish boys, would have been familiar with the story of the Jewish prophet Elijah. Elijah, who was an Old Testament prophet, the disciples would have known his story. It was part of what they were taught growing up, part of what they would have referred to as the law and the prophets. They had likely memorized the story of Elijah. And that story, kind of, it goes like this. Elijah is on the run. There's a drought and famine in the land. Here's what happened. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens. That strike anybody? Who are we supposed to consider? The ravens. I'm going to direct the ravens to supply you with food there. And so he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. He stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook, which is a lot like manna. It's enough for today, but I'm not going to give you more than that because you might start storing it up in your barns. In the midst of scarcity, abundance. The story continues. The brook dries up because there's a drought, so God tells Elijah to go to the city of Zarephath where he'll find a widow that he's directed to supply him with food. So again, Elijah listens to God, and he goes, and when he gets there, he finds the widow gathering sticks, and he goes up to her, and he, he asks for some food. And check out her very familiar response. Well, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar. Maybe it was alabaster. And a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and, and make a meal for myself and my, my son, me and my own, that we may eat it and die. Which seems like a bit of a grandiose overstatement. But amongst us uh, who is trying to protect our stuff, you know, who's not prone to overstatements? Listen to what Elijah says to her Don't be afraid. What does scarcity thinking do? It makes you afraid. Don't be afraid. What did Jesus say? Uh, Jesus, who had eyes to see more than any other thing, says over and over and over again, more than any other saying, don't be afraid. Elijah continues. He goes, listen, go home and do as you've said. But first, but first, first, before you do anything else, first, before you make something for yourself, First, trust God here. Give him your first fruits. First, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. And so why should the disciples' eyes have been open when Jesus turns five fish and two loaves into enough? Because this is the story of the God of abundance. And they knew it. But they got scared. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of the flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. This Thanksgiving week, let me ask you a question. Do you have eyes that see? See, I want to show you how hardwired this I, I, It's. It's so hardwired into our brains to think um, with a mindset of scarcity. The disciples knew Elijah's story. It was a famous story. They had just lived out the feeding of the 5,000. 
They had experienced, much like you and I have at seasons in our lives, the abundant care of God. But, but, but just a short time later, Mark records that another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat again, Jesus calls his disciples back to him, and guess what he says? I have compassion for these people. They have nothing to eat. See what compassion does, generosity does, a sense of abundance. They have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come of a long distance. And guess what the disciples said? Jesus, you're right. Let's feed them. No. The disciples, who now this should be old for them, but it's not. Jesus, we only have seven loaves of uh, bread and a couple of fish. In fact, they literally said, where could we possibly get enough to feed them? Mark recounts for us that Jesus does it again in front of them. Miraculously, mysteriously, he feeds this time 4,000 men plus women and children. There was again enough, but the disciples could not see. Now, this is almost comical because now he feeds everyone again and he gets in the boat with the disciples and he's trying to teach them. And as he's teaching them, they start to get confused and they start to go, maybe we're not understanding this because here's the deal. We only brought with us one loaf of bread with us and that's probably not going to be enough. And maybe he's talking to us about the fact that we screwed up and only brought one loaf of bread in the boat. Here's Jesus' response. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why, 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 why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts that hard? Do do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand? And he said to them, Do you still not understand? Over and over and over, same story. Do you have eyes to see? Don't you remember? Why are you so afraid? Here's how Matthew records Jesus' teaching on this. Matthew says, Jesus looked at the crowd and said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which sounds a lot like what Luke heard him say. But then check this out, the very next words out of Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Or as the proverb writer went, as a man thinks in his heart, so he shall be. If you think everything's scarce, you're going to live like that. Jesus continues because... How you see the world is so important. Seeing the world as a place of scarcity scarcity, and not trusting the goodness of God, it enslaves you to a life of fear. No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. And so this Thanksgiving week, your assignment, I think, is pretty clear because I think God's teaching on this is pretty clear. To break the hold of scarcity to remove the blinders so that I could see. God, I believe, has given a two-part plan. It's fairly simple. It's this, thanks and giving. Because generosity is the complete opposite of scarcity thinking, and nothing drives generosity like an attitude of gratitude. If you were here last week, I, I introduced you to this concept, the concept behind the biblical teaching on giving, specifically the biblical teaching on tithing. 
This is why God commanded, under the old covenant, we have a new command now that I talked about before, of how Paul said that we should decide in our hearts what to give and, and not give under compulsion, and we should give joyfully. But under the old covenant, God had ordained uh, something called a tithe. It meant one-tenth, and, and his people were to give one-tenth of their crops as a sacrifice, and not just any tenth, but the first tenth, the first fruits. Why? Because this would break them from, uh, free from the scarcity mindset. They would no longer have to rely on themselves and their barns. I give back to God something significant, a significant portion, and I give like Elijah commanded the widow to. I give it first, but I don't give what's left. But as I showed you last week, he commanded his people, when you do it, I think we missed this part, when you do it, do it with a story. And not just any story. They were to recount, or as Jesus said to the disciples, they were to remember their story. And what God had done, it was to be a thanks and then a giving. Let me show you what I mean. God was leading his people into a new land, a, a land of abundance, overflowing with milk and honey, and they were to be a blessing to everybody else from that land. But he knew their scarcity propensity and what was likely to happen, so here's what he told them. He said, when you've entered the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and you've taken possession of it and you've settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Does not God need your fruit? No. Does God need your money? No. But then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front on the altar of the Lord your God. And then you shall declare before the Lord your God your story. And they begin with Abraham. My father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there, and he became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer. They subjected us to harsh labor. But we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. And so he brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. With great terrors and with signs and wonders, he brought us to this place, and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And then you and the Le Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. And when you have finished setting aside a tenth of all of your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Why? Because as the proverb writer said, he that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. How's your eyesight? This Thanksgiving, I just want to encourage you, if you're so tired of living like under a scarcity mindset, there's not enough, I need more, I need to protect myself more, if you want to free yourself from that, give and be thankful. As I worked on this, I started writing my own thankfulness story a little bit because I want to be the kind of person that, that is generous. I don't want to give as your pastor. I don't want to give because I'm, I, I, I'm under compulsion. I, I, want to, I want to live with an open hand. I, I want to have eyes that see. And so I started thinking. None of my grandparents even finished high school. They were both low-wage factory workers. My own father went to college at night, eight years, to get an undergraduate degree. He would sit in his room every night, no air conditioner in the summer, so he could advance from a bank teller up to vice president. All the while, my mother was willing to work tough jobs at ShopRite or overnight shifts as a waitress at a local diner dealing with the drunk kids. And then God... God miraculously led me to meeting my wife, and it was through her and her family that I came to understand that Jesus was the Son of God, that he had been sent here to die for my sins, that if I was the only person that had ever lived, the Father still would have sent the Son for me. And I began to walk with him. 
And God, God miraculously gave me an interview at a bank. Somebody got sick and I was called because there was an open spot. I got an interview. I, I shouldn't have gotten it. And then he provided a job for me as a private equity investor that I certainly didn't deserve. And then through all kinds of crazy things, he allowed me to become an owner in an investment company that I didn't have any money to, to invest in. He then, and this is crazy, he took a guy blinded by his own ambition and scarcity mindset, and through event after crazy event, he moved him from private equity to public ministry to this pulpit while blessing me with the greatest wife and four kids any human being could ever hope for. I am here to testify to you this morning that God is a God of abundance. He is the good God of more. He has more in store for you, so you don't need to store up for you. And when I recount my story, when I give thanks for a second or two at least, it feels like my eyes and my hands start to open. Jesus said to the scarcity-minded rich farmer, you fool, this very night your life is going to be demanded from you. And then who's going to get what you prepared for yourself? It reminded me of a, a story Tony Campolo often closed his, his talks with. I'll, I'm not the storyteller Campolo is, and I certainly don't have his great voice, but I, I'm going to give it my best shot for you. He, he said, since my late teenage years, I've been a member of the Mount Carmel Baptist Church, an African-American congregation in West Philadelphia. If you don't know Tony Campolo, he, he's, make, he's as white as white can be, and he loves this church. He said, once a year at my church, we have Student Recognition Day. I, I remember one of those Sundays when more than 20, colleges, or co 20 college and university students, they come once a year and they sit in the first two pews. And the, the pastor looks at them and with pride and great affection. He calls them up one by one to come forward and tell the congregation what they were studying and what they hoped to become. One young man said, I'm studying at Harvard University. I'm going to be a doctor. Elderly grandmothers and grandfathers responded with delight, my, oh, my, oh, yes, thank you, Jesus. Another student said, I'm, I'm studying engineering at MIT, and there, there were cries of approval and the clapping of hands. A, a young woman came forward and announced, I'm studying music at Juilliard, and I heard grandmothers and grandfathers all over that congregation saying, wonderful, wonderful, good, good, thank you, Jesus. He said, you may think you've heard great music, but you haven't heard the greatest music until you've heard about 40 or 50 grandmothers and grandfathers moaning and groaning the moans and groans of joy because their grandchildren are becoming what slavery never let them be. Even every year, after all the students have finished their brief presentations and are sitting there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, the pastor gets up, looks right at them, and in a stern, loud voice declares, children! You're going to die someday. That's right, you're going to die. You can't even imagine dying right now. But one of these days, they're going to take you out to the cemetery, drop you in a hole, throw dirt over your casket, and they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. <laughs> so I want you to think about something. He said, when you were born, you were the only one who cried. Everybody else was happy. But that's not what's important. Here's what's important. When you die, will you be the only one who's happy and everybody else will cry? That depends on what you're living for. I would say it depends on what you see. The man can come on up. He, he went on. He goes, are you trying to get titles, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, doctor's degrees? Is that what your life is about? Collecting titles, storing up things in your barns? Or is it collecting testimonies, Campolo says. I listen to him tell this story many times. He goes, that's black preaching at its best. It's got rhythm. It's got music. It's got poetry. I can still hear the pastor saying it over and over again. Titles or testimonies? Titles or testimonies? And then he swept through the Bible in five minutes. This man swept from Genesis to Revelation in one majestic run of words. I can hear him saying, Pharaoh had the title ruler of Egypt. That's a good title. But when it was over, that's all Pharaoh had, a title. He had the title. But Moses had the testimonies. 
With great power in his voice, the pastor went on. There was Queen Jezebel, good title queen. She was going to destroy Elijah, the prophet of God, but it went as over. All Jezebel had was a title. She had the title, but Elijah had the testimonies. And then there was King Darius, good title king. He threw Daniel in the lion's den, but when it was over, all he had was the title. Darius had the title, but Daniel had the... Not bad. That's not good, but it's not bad. And so the pastor goes on. He rhythmically preaches, and the people respond with joy, and they clap their hands. And, and Campolo goes, I can still hear the pastor as he looked down at those two rows of young people saying, when it's all over for you, and they lay you in your grave, what will you have? You want a tombstone with all your titles? You want a couple of barns full of accomplishments and money? Or do you want people standing around your grave giving testimonies about how you love them and how you cared for them in the name of Jesus Christ and how you made a difference in, your, in their lives? I wish for you both titles and testimonies. But if you have to make a choice, go for the testimonies. Testimonies.